Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. Um, We've been studying through the book of Acts, so we'll be back in Acts chapter 16 today. And don't feel bad if you missed anything coming up to today. Um, The book of Acts is the historical first-person eyewitness account of pretty much how the church started and how we got here today. It begins the story at Jesus's ascension, his last 40 days on earth before he ascended to heaven. And it actually goes through the the beginning and middle part of the first century and traces the message of the gospel from the city of Jerusalem at the very beginning. And it shows how it spreads out literally and becomes a global movement by the end of the book of Acts. It's written by a man named Luke who by Uh, occupation was a physician, but he's very clear. He wrote the gospel of Luke and he wrote the book of Acts. He's very clear at the very beginning. He went after facts and truth. He got his, he sources all of these accounts from first person eyewitnesses. And so he's letting us know up front, he understands he's writing history here. And he wants us to feel confident that it survived all contemporary fact-checking. And you and I can trust that it's true. And so today when we dig into here, we're in the part of the book of the Acts where he really picks up the pace of the storytelling. They go here, they go there, they run into this person here, they're in jail there, they save someone here, they get on a boat and go there. The pace really picks up and the stories start to come rapid fire. And that's appropriate because for the rest of the book of Acts, we're primarily following one guy, the Apostle Paul. We're following It's not that that was the only thing going on because we know Peter was doing stuff, the apostles were doing things, Barnabas and uh, John Mark have taken off and they're going and spreading the gospel and strengthening the church. But Luke, and maybe today we'll find out a little more of a practical reason why Luke really hones in on the activity of Paul. You could actually pretty accurately retitle the book, the book of the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. Because it's pretty clear, Luke always gives, he's pretty much showing us, here's what the Holy Spirit was up to and how he used the apostles to do it. And so we're going to see a little bit more of that detail today. Last week, we left the story with Paul and Silas beginning Paul's second missionary journey. And he had an itinerary. And he had a really good layout of the cities he wanted to visit in order. And he wanted to go to these cities. He wanted to preach about Jesus. He wanted to find out if there was a church there that he could strengthen and build disciples. And he only got like one page into his itinerary before his itinerary started to run into some trouble. And we we read last week that on two separate occasions, Paul and Silas wanted to go into his city and preach the gospel, and Luke records that the Holy Spirit prevented them from preaching there, which sounds backwards from most sermons. Most sermons are about go and preach wherever the Holy Spirit leads you and preach anywhere and everywhere, and we talk about like being farmers with seed, just slinging seed everywhere, slinging the message of God everywhere, and we have these really unusual events where you had Christians, early Christians, called by God to be missionaries and preach the gospel. They went, and when they got ready to enter a city, somehow, some way, the Holy Spirit closed the door. 
And we were trying to make sense of it, and the conclusion we came to is that sometimes the Holy Spirit guides us by showing us not where to go so that we know more clearly where to go. And that following in following Jesus, a closed door is just as valuable as an open door. And we just talked about how in our lives many times there's good things and there's God things in front of us, and God says, that is a good thing, and that is a godly thing, but it's not for you and not for now. And sometimes God helps us know where to go by kind of shutting down the other options so he can guide us where he wants us to be. That's exactly what happened. The first city that got shut down, they went to their second choice and said, maybe it's Bithynia. And when they went to enter Bithynia, the Holy Spirit prevented them again. And we, we don't know how he did it. Did all their A and B reservations get canceled in the system? Did they, you know, did their credit cards run out of balance? Did they, you know, did God send a monster, a dream? I don't know, but he was obvious enough to show them these are not the places. And so they, they just settled on the idea, let's go to the seaport. Let's go to the place where they have boats, and then let's, let's circle up and pray about this. Now, at this point, how many people are traveling with Paul at this point in the story? Do you remember from last week? He started with two, him and Silas. Last week, we added a third. Timothy, I like how you did that. Do that again, Moses. Timothy, okay. Is that the thing from the Hunger Games? Oh, no, that's something else. That's from the Hunger Games. Yeah, is it for tribute? My wife and I do that sometimes when we're just having a rough day with the kids and we're just like, I volunteer for tribute. I'll go handle it. Um, I'm sorry, that's a message on parenting on what not to do. We'll save that for another. We'll edit that out of the live stream. Sorry, that, that, that was too transparent. Sorry about that. Um, our house is always peaceful and quiet. We're godly parents. Our children are saints, and we're perfect. So um, I don't know. Let me just make sure I put that out there for the record. In the event, babe, you're listening to this later. I just want to make sure I clarified things. But uh, goodness, where was I? I even wrote in my notes, no rabbit trails, and there I went, down a rabbit trail. I'm coming back. Timothy. Okay. Yeah, so at this point, there's three people. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they get to the seaport. Paul goes to sleep that night, has a dream of a Macedonian man. Now, that's important because this is a man from Europe. Up to this point in history, we have no record of the gospel leaving Asia and going to Europe. Europe is total virgin ground for Christianity. And I don't know your family background. We come from all over the world here. My family is of German descent on both sides, my parents and my grandparents. I am thankful that on this evening, God sent this dream to this man to get the gospel into Europe. I'm so thankful because that's a huge part of my heritage. Had somebody not been willing to divert from their itinerary, I don't know when the gospel gets there, but, but God speaks to him through a dream that Paul has, and he wakes up, and immediately they go, and I love it, immediate obedience. He didn't hem and haw or hedge around. He didn't ask for extra insight. He just says yes. They get on the boat, and they go. Um, so let's begin reading in chapter 16, verse 11, and I am going to pause at the first verse. I realize I need to keep it moving today, but I'm going to pause at the first verse, the first word, because it's important. Some of you really like grammar, and I want you to notice that Luke, in writing this up to this point, has been saying he's been using the third person. They went here. They went there. They stopped. They started. What is the first? There's a change here in verse 11. What's the first word? We. Now, and I'm not trying to be silly in theological books, they call this next part of Acts the we passages because the tense in writing changes from third person to first person. What does that indicate to you? That first word, what does that indicate to you? That, that the person who's writing was part of the team now, right? So Luke, at this point, writes himself into the story. So it's very, very likely that he lived near Troas, and somehow, some way, God connected him with Paul 
and Silas and Timothy, and Paul adds him to his team. Now think about the caliber of people Paul has on this four-person team. You got Paul, you've got Silas, you've got Timothy, you've got Luke. Now at this point, he might not realize what kind of a team he has today, but now let's look. He's got a pretty good team. These are heavyweights in Christian history. These are writers of the New Testament. These are the first pastors. These are, this is like a who's who. Can I suggest you sometimes you don't appreciate and I don't appreciate the people God puts us around when we're around them. He might just, you might not even realize the small team of people that are in your circle right now, the friends that you rub shoulders with, the people you go to church with, the people you serve with. You might look back 20 years, like I did the other day, someone showed me a picture from my youth ministry days back in, back in Georgia, and it was a picture of, of a worship service that we had there. And in that picture, I see the guy who was playing bass, who was, who was just playing bass on the worship team in my youth ministry, is now the district youth director for the Appalachian District. The drummer, Brandon, now is, uh, travels with Mac Powell and uh, wrote the song Death Was Arrested. If you've heard that song, he wrote that song. And he was just the drummer in a little youth group back in the day. You know, one of the girls who was singing harmony at that point, I think it was in 10th grade, she's a lawyer in D.C. You know, there's another guy who was singing backup who's now a, a youth pastor in Alabama, and you're looking at this and you're like, I did not appreciate fully, you know, the people that I was around when I was there. Look at that team that he's traveling with. What an awesome team. There's a theory that, that Paul, one of the things he was really uh, excited about Luke was that Luke was a physician, and Paul had some medical problems, and so it's possible that Paul saw an advantage in having a doctor with him on team. I don't know, but they, all four of them, get on a boat at Troas. They sail straight across the island of Samothrace, and the next day they landed at Neapolis. From there, we reached Philippi, a major city. Have you heard Philippi before? Philippians? Okay, so this is... If you've read the rest of the New Testament, or at least know the books, you kind of get an idea of what is important about Philippi. You know there's going to be a church there at some point, but there's not a church when they arrive. They reach Philippi, a major city of that district of Macedonia. It was also a Roman colony. We stayed there several days. I'm not going to unpack everything about all those different islands and places that they passed through. Again, Luke's giving historical credibility to the route that they took, adding in details to demonstrate that it was fact and that it showed logically how they would have gotten where they went to. Every time that Paul, one of his strategies was he loved cities, urban centers, where there was lots of population. And I'm not going to try and suggest that Paul was aware of marketing in the way that we think of it today, but you'll listen to athletes and celebrities. There's certain cities that they want to be attached to because of the marketing opportunities there. The New Yorks, the LAs, the Chicagos, those types of places where if you go there, just by virtue of you being there, your influence can go global because they have a global reach. And Paul adopted a similar understanding to how he did evangelism. He tried to go to the most populated areas, knowing that if he could get to those cities and plant churches there, then the churches in those cities could grow up and reach all the outlying areas. And so it's not a surprise that he went to a major city in Macedonia. But here we now see in verse 12, the time when Christianity leaps the curb and now is in Europe. They stayed there several days. What did they do while they were there? Well, even before we read thir- verse, well, here's verse 13, but let me ask you this. Where did Paul usually start his evangelism efforts in a city? Where did he go? Synagogues, right. That's where who met? The Jewish people. So strategy's probably the same. On the Sabbath, which is when the Jewish synagogue would have met, we went a little way outside the city to a riverbank where we thought people would be meeting for prayer. And we sat down to speak with some women 
who had gathered there. Here's what's interesting. Does he go to a synagogue? No. And what does this tell us? There probably is not a synagogue in Philippi because the Jewish population was probably way too small. Jewish law said in order for there to be a synagogue established in a city, you had to have a minimum of 10 Jewish men. So obviously, Philippi did not meet that minimum criteria. However, the Jewish law did provide that even if you did not have the minimum number of people to have synagogue, you could gather for prayer and do prayer. And so who are the, who are the, the strong Jewish people holding it together? Women, which is cool because Luke in no way shies away from showing the, the role that the prominent role women played in the spread of the gospel across the world. So let's see what happened there. Verse 14. One of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshiped God. As she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying. So we learn a little bit about Lydia. Today we meet three people. We meet Lydia, we meet a slave girl, and we meet a jailer. They were looking for Lydia. The slave girl was looking for them and they were not looking for the jailer, and the jailer was not looking for them. They just ran into each other. And that's kind of the way that the gospel opportunities are going to come up in your life. There's going to be some people God puts on your heart, and you're going to go after them. Other people, they're going to come after you. They're going to come to you seeking some type of conversation about spiritual things. And then there's going to be people, you're not really looking for them. They're not really looking for you. You're just going to cross paths, not so coincidentally. And so we see all three occasions here. Now, Lydia, we learn a lot about her. She is a wealthy Jewish entrepreneurial businesswoman. What does she make? She makes cloth. What kind of cloth? (laughs) Isn't that an interesting word to put in there? Expensive purple cloth. Now, what type of person would want to buy purple cloth back in the ancient days? The royals, right? Because that purple dye was hard to get. It came from one type of shell. You had to dive to go get it. So it was expensive. The only people who could afford it were the upper, upper, upper class. So she is the personal fashion designer for the royal people. She's making good money. She works for herself She's independent. She doesn't work for anybody else. She is a merchant, which means she travels doing business. And isn't it interesting that the first convert that we see in the entire European continent is a woman business owner? That's awesome. That's awesome. And there's something that goes on here. It says, as she listened to us, Paul, Silas, Timothy and Luke, as they're talking to them about the kingdom of God, about Jesus, about spiritual things, something invisible was happening that they couldn't see with their eyes. Says the Lord opened her heart. I don't want you to miss out on this. Don't ever underestimate what's going on anytime you try and engage someone in a spiritual conversation. You might feel like you're being rejected. You might feel like it's not going through. You might think, what is even the use of trying to show love, kindness, compassion, understanding? What's the use of trying? I don't see anything. I want you to understand, every time you attempt to bring Jesus into the thoughts of another person, you're not working alone here. The Lord is opening people's hearts. He's doing the plowing while you're you're doing the talking. 
And I want you to understand, there's times, listen, there's times when I preach and I go home and I think I did not see any visible results of the teaching. And God has to remind me like, kid, look, son, I was working on everybody's heart while you were speaking. I've lived just long enough to see some conversations from 10 and 20 years ago start to grow a little bit. She, the Lord opened her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying. Let me keep reading. She and her household were baptized, which is really cool. It means that not only did she receive the Lord, but she invited Paul. And back in ancient times, they, you know, Paul really respected family and it, he considered it rude for him to offer one member of the household salvation and not give that same opportunity to everybody else. Now he was very clear, just because Lydia got saved did not mean that her entire household was saved by proxy. Do you know what I mean by that? In other words, Paul's saying, listen, you now have opened up the opportunity for me to share with your whole family and they will have an opportunity to be saved, but they get saved the same way you do. They don't get saved because you do. They get saved by, you know, belief and repentance. Those are the same things that, that she needed to do. She says, if you agree that I'm a true believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my home. And she urged us until we all agreed. And it's awesome. Like now we have a church. She opens up her home. She's hospitable. She says, come and stay in my home. And now we have a church in Philippi. And the first European church is opened up by a wealthy, independent businesswoman who was good in the area of fashion. And I think it's just such an awesome story about, about God's goodness spreading through there. Here's my one application statement I want to make sure I say before we keep moving on. Be aware that God is playing an active, often invisible role in every spiritual conversation. Be aware of that. You're not wasting any time. Supa told me a story this last week. We were in a Zoom call on Thursday. And uh, a few months ago, she had told me a story that connected to a story she told me this week. A few months ago, she told me about, um, she's getting ready to go on a missions trip here pretty soon, and there's going to be a lot of street evangelism. And she was sharing with me that one of the ways the Holy Spirit was training her was when she would be just out with, with her kids at the playground, just being sensitive to the Holy Spirit, highlighting somebody to her that she might see in the playground, that he might be encouraging her to go just try and have a conversation with, not really knowing where it goes, but just trying to have a conversation and she described to me a few months ago of a time where she was with the kids and the Holy Spirit clearly highlighted somebody for her to go talk to. And she responded immediately to the Holy Spirit and went over and just tried to, you know, just have a casual conversation. And, you know, she said, and I was totally rejected and totally blown off and it just didn't go anywhere. And I've had those same experiences and my heart kind of hurts for that. And, you know, we were trying to process together, okay, you know, what, what are we learning in this and what's God teaching us in this? And you can kind of feel like, okay, I blew it. <laughs> I messed it up. God had some huge plan for me today, and I went over and tried to have a conversation, and it didn't happen. And you know, and we talked through that and came to a healthy place with that. No, no, we didn't. No, you didn't blow it. It's up to us to say yes to Jesus. God's working on their heart, but sometimes people resist, and that's not your fault. They're rejecting what they're feeling from the, the Holy Spirit. They're not rejecting you personally. They're they're shutting down their heart to the Holy Spirit. And she let me know this last week. She's like, you know, I went to the playground, and the person was there again. And she's like. And I went over to them, and when I said, uh, hello, I missed seeing you or whatever, the person just said, oh, I remember you. And it was a positive remembrance. Now, I know you're waiting, okay, and did she lead them to Jesus and blah, blah, blah. Here's what was happening in that moment. We're seeing that the Lord had been working on that person's heart in a way different than our eyes said. Because that person 
over the course of months when they saw Suba again, did not, they didn't like grab their kids and run. They said, oh, I remember you. As if to say you were the person who came up and was so nice and friendly and maybe I was suspicious and cautious because anytime a stranger comes up and talks to me, I get a little bit, you know, they didn't go into all that, but God is doing things in people's hearts we can't see. So let's give him a chance to do what he wants to do by not being afraid to get in those conversations. Don't ever feel like you're going into those conversations alone. God's always working on people's hearts and we're working together with him in the fields, okay? Let's keep going. I gotta keep moving. I took too long on that. Let's keep going. Uh, Verse 16, pace picks up. One day, as we were going down to the place of prayer, this story sounds really good so far. They've got a place of prayer in the city. They've got a place to stay. They've already made some, made, some new, made some converts. They've got a church that's growing. We met a slave girl. What that means is that she is a young lady who literally was owned by, and we find out some entrepreneurial businessmen who are exploiting her to make profit for themselves. What do you mean they're exploiting her? What did she offer them? Here's what she offered them. She, this slave girl had a spirit, Greek Literal Greek word there is, phrase there is the demonic spirit of the python, which is the actual translation that, that enabled her to somehow tell the future. She earned a lot of money for her masters by telling fortunes. I just want to make sure you understand the score, score here. This is a girl, not a slave woman. This is a girl who, and it's in this passage, who has been possessed by a demonic spirit. I just want to affirm what we're taught in the scripture. God is real. Satan is real. There is a very real spiritual dimension. There are angels and there are fallen angels that are called demons. And those demons answer to Satan and they oppose the message of Jesus. Demons can possess and oppress human beings. If you are saved if you are in Christ and he is in you, you cannot be possessed by a demon, okay? You cannot be possessed by a demon. In this case, eventually Paul and Luke discern that what was behind this girl's special powers was demonic and of the occult. And her owners, you'll find out they could care less about the torment this girl was in All they knew is that she could make them money. And so, of course, you have people who want to know the future. Don't you want to know the future? You're thinking about, you want to know your financial future, your romantic future. You want to know how long you're going to live. You want to know where to take this job. That's big business. If you can convince people that for for a fee, they can tell you there's lots of profit to be had. And so they are exploiting this girl's demonic possession for their own profit. So let's see what happens when she starts hanging out with the apostles. Verse 17, she followed Paul and the rest of us shouting. So she was their hype person. She was like the hype woman for their team. Here's what she shouts. Now tell me how this sounds to you. These men are servants of the most high God and they have come to tell you how to be saved. Now, how does that sound? Does sound pretty good? Sounds good to me. Looks good on the surface to me. Um, good time for me to remind you though, The Bible was not originally written in English. The New Testament was originally written in Greek. And so translations that we have, no matter what one you use, the New Living Translation, the NIV, 
the KJV, the NKJV, the NAS, the Message, the Living Bible, the Amplified, Schofield, whatever you use, a team of scholars wrestled with the original Greek language and then tried to translate it as best they could, or in some cases interpret it, into the English language so that it is both accurate and readable. Now, there's much, much more we could talk about that. Sometimes one tiny word can change the entire context of a conversation, can't it? I hope if you've ever, some of you who are in any kind of romantic relationship understand sometimes it's just one word. Forget the whole argument. You use that one word. And that one word, we're going to hang on that one word. Do you know that even articles like the words a, an, and the can change the whole meaning of a conversation? I was wondering, what is really the problem in what she's saying here? And in my translation, the New Living Translation, I'm not seeing it. So I had to get some help and look at the original Greek language and try and break it down word for word. Now listen to what she says if I just translated the original Greek out and tell me if you hear the problem. Here's what it says. Um, in the original Greek language, that sentence says, they have come to tell you a way to be saved. Does that sound like a problem to you? Let me say it a different way. What if it said, they have come to tell you the way to be saved. Which sounds better, a way to be saved or the way to be saved? What do we believe? It's the. When you say, and when she, she didn't say, the demonic power used her voice to say it. It's, you see, this is what the demonic usually does. It makes something sound almost identical to Jesus, but there's one little thing that if you're not tuned in, you miss it. She's going around saying, come listen to these servants of the Most High God who have come to tell you a way, one way, one of many possible ways to be saved. When you say a, it immediately strips all the claims of the gospel away and lowers it to the rank of any other way you can cock to get your way to heaven. Jesus said, I am a way, a truth. No, that's not what he says. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, nobody comes to the Father except by me. And what this demonic voice was trying to do was get out into the city, come and listen to these men, they'll tell you one way to be saved. If it doesn't work for you, go find something else. There are still people today, many, many, many people, maybe billions of people who are trying to get to heaven away. One way, their way. But it's not the way. And the moment that you take Christianity to being one of a possible different 100 roads to heaven, you strip the gospel of all of its power. And Paul recognized this. And so verse 18, here's what they did. This went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated that he turned and he said to the demon within her, not to the girl, to the demon within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And instantly, instantly it left her. So much to unpack here, which I had the time to do it all. Let me give you a little bit of it. Why? Uh, okay, well, we can go to application. <laughs> Demons respond when godly men and godly women exercise trust in God 
through the name of Jesus Christ to set people free the way God promised. Demons don't respond to our rituals. They don't respond to our tantrums. They don't respond to our antics. Paul did not engage the spirit in a conversation. He did not drag this out for hours. What the demons responded to is when some godly men and women exercised their trust in God, God promised that through Jesus, he will set people free. And you know what else he was doing? He was showing everybody in that place, this is what the kingdom of God is like. In the kingdom of God, They were expanding God's borders here. And inside God's borders, demons don't run the show. Demons don't testify for Christ. Believers do. And so he's showing that in God's kingdom, he has power over the demonic and it sets people free. He's showing them what the kingdom of God is like. Now let's go back into, can we go back to that previous screen? This went on day after day. I wrestled with this when I was studying. Why didn't Paul deal with this the very first time he met the slave girl? Why did it go on day after day after day before he finally got around to delivering her? The text doesn't tell us, but here's what I think. And I, so the text doesn't tell us exactly, but I, I think I can make this conclusion. So think with me. At least I can say Paul was very patient and he did not act hastily here. I will tell you this from personal experience. Sometime it takes a little while to figure out what you're really dealing with. Do you know that four times in Jesus's life, people called him clinically insane? They were all wrong. They misdiagnosed him. And sometimes in a situation like this, I could see Paul being like, all right, well, this is interesting. Why is this girl crying out like this? Does, is, there, is she just immature? Is she well-intentioned? Is she just here for today? Is there a behavioral problem here? It took him a little while between him and the Holy Spirit and probably his team to figure out we're dealing with demonic possession here. You don't always know right away. I can tell you, I don't always know right away when something's going wrong, what's at the root. So I don't act hastily or with a knee-jerk reaction. I act prayerfully using, using the discernment that's offered to us, the, the gift of discernment through the Holy Spirit to differentiate between what is righteous and what's unrighteous. I just think it took Paul and his team a couple days to figure out what's really going on here. When they recognize this is demonic, they dealt with it surgically, directly, and quickly. It says when he got exasperated. He's not, there's nothing here to suggest he was frustrated with that girl. You know what probably frustrated him? Two things. Number one, that the demon was undermining their whole message and he wasn't going to let that happen. Number two, he was probably incredibly upset at how this, once he figured out this was demonic and this girl was being exploited, he was probably just so exasperated for that little girl and saying, this is not right. She is suffering and other people are profiting. And I love the fact that he shows us a great plan here. Like you don't have to learn tactics. You don't have to learn rituals. That's not what demons respond to. They respond to Jesus. They respond to us putting our trust in God's promises to set people free. And instantly it left her and she's experiencing complete and total freedom. Complete and total freedom. And shouldn't that have been a great way to end the story, but it continues, verse 19. There's another situation here. Her master's hopes of wealth were now shattered. Uh Uh-oh, she messed with big brother. She messed with big business. She messed with the powers that be. And they could care less about this little girl being free. They could care less about her suffering. All they cared about is profit. And here's what I want to say. I want to be careful because this could go in a whole other direction. I want you to know that there is a modern-day spirit exactly like this. And there are people 
of power and influence in this world who could care less if you get addicted to something, if it forms a habit. All they care about is profiting off of your bondage. They want you to be in bondage, to consume things over and over and over and over and over again. They could care less how it impacts you. They just want to make money off you. They don't want you to be independent of what they're selling or what service they're providing. They don't want you to break free from nicotine. They don't want you to break free from a dependence upon certain internet sites to be able to deal with your issues. They don't want you, they don't care how it impacts you for the negative. I've always wondered, you know, and I'm not, I've always wondered this, like if the, if the, if the tobacco companies were really concerned about health over profit, why do they still make those things? Even though they have to print all the labels and warnings, why don't they just say, you know what? Let's just, not, let's just not make it anymore. I'll tell you why. Wealth. I'm not trying to offend you if, if, you, are, you, know, if you participate. I'm just I'm trying to speak facts to you. I'm trying to open your eyes to see that that spirit that those masters have is still alive today. We still, as humans, generally speaking, if we could choose between my wealth and your health, I'm going to pick my wealth. We'll leave that for another day. First service, I was enthusiastic about that. I'm not sure if I just didn't speak it well or I bothered you. We'll keep it, we'll keep it moving. Um, verse 19, their, their hopes of wealth were shattered. And so now they try and get revenge. They grabbed Paul and Silas. Who grabbed them? The masters. I want you to see this. The city officials didn't have beef with Paul and Silas initially. Paul and Silas broke no laws here. You'll see this pattern repeated. It's not usually the local police and local governments who have issues with Paul and Silas. It's local entrepreneurs who feel like their income was being upset by God making people free. You'll see that over and over and over throughout New Testament cities. Alexander, the other, other people in the New Testament. They grab Paul and Silas. They drag them before the authorities at the marketplace, the mall police, right? The whole city is in an uproar because of these Jews. So now it gets racial, right? Do you see that here? Okay, thank you, John. Do you see that here? These men? No, these racial outsiders. Because this is a Roman province. There's less than 10 Jewish men in the city. Now, here's what they don't know yet because they didn't ask for ID. You know that Paul and Silas are Roman citizens? Now, they could have played that card at this point, but for some reason they don't. So what were the Romans supposed to do? Well, by their law, they should have an investigation. They should interview witnesses. They should figure out the charges and then bring them to trial. Here's what happens instead, verse 21. They are teaching customs that are illegal for us Romans to practice, these Jews. (laughs) They're trying to make us like them. So a mob quickly forms against Paul and Silas, and the city officials order them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. This is not Roman law. This is mob justice. So they're stripped and they're beaten with wooden rods. This day took a sharp left turn for them. Start off really good. Life can go from really good to really bad really quick. Verse 23. They were severely beaten. And then they're thrown into prison where they meet a third person today. They meet the jailer. The jailer is ordered to make sure they didn't escape. Now, once a jailer is ordered to make sure a prisoner doesn't escape, that jailer is given an incentive to keep that prisoner in prison. You know what it is? They tell that jailer, if the prisoner escapes, you get executed. 
That was the Roman law. So that's how they made sure the jailers kept track of the prisoners. So the jailer put them in the inner dungeon. Now, if you have an inner dungeon, you also have an outer dungeon. So he's basically putting him in max security prison, the supermax here. And they clamp their feet in the stocks to keep their body at an uncomfortable posture indefinitely. This is not a good day for Paul and Silas. There is nothing comfortable about the dungeon they're in. There's nothing hopeful there. There's not good artwork on the wall. They don't have nice floors. Uh, the, the food service, not delicious. There's no music being pumped in. There's not someone coming around to put peroxide on their bandages and stitch them up. They're literally having their limbs attached in stocks while their open wounds fester and hurt. This is the environment that they're in for doing what? For liberating a slave girl from the business people who were exploiting her. This is called injustice. This is called human rights violations. This is called racial atrocities. It's all of those things. And you know how they ended up here? By following Jesus. The ancient Christians embraced and understood that following Jesus meant at times patiently enduring suffering to honor the Lord and to purify their hearts. And it's a tough passage to read, but now we're going to come to the passage that might be a little more familiar to you if you've read through the Bible previously. You might know this next part. Um, some translations say late at the midnight, late at the midnight hour. So you've heard songs about this, right? Around midnight, Paul and Silas were groaning and they were complaining. They were begging to get out of it. It's not what it says. What were they doing? They were praying and what else were they doing? Singing. What were they singing? Hymns. And some of you are so glad this is in the Bible. Like, I love me some hymns. You see, it was the hymns that brought their deliverance. They were praying and singing to who? God. They were singing to God, presumably about God. And you read this other sentence. This is an important one. And the other prisoners were listening. Now, Luke could have probably added because they had no other choice. (laughs) Don't ever underestimate the impact of your prayers and your worship on the lives of people who don't pray and worship like you do. As they're listening, they're hearing the gospel. They're hearing about Christ. And they're hearing joy. That's crazy. Because there is nothing joyful in that room, in that dungeon, in that environment. There is nothing external to plug into to find joy. There's no hope there. There's no wealth there. There's no comfort there. There's no security there. There's no peace there. All the things you and I chase in life to give us joy is not in that room. And yet they have so much of it, it's tumbling out of them. What does that tell us? Let me give you the application point just in case I have to cut this early because you got to get this. Here's what it tells me. The origin of true joy is completely internal. It's spiritual. It's not external, circumstantial. You know what that means? Real joy is not something you find in circumstances because you can't control them. Real joy is something that only comes spiritually through Jesus. 
Because what it strongly hints is that if these two men in that room at that time with those injuries can pray and sing, first of all, how much does it take to get you to stop worshiping? What does it really take for you to give up on prayer for a few days? What would it take to get you to put aside Bible study today? A whole lot less than that, right? Man, we feel bad for a few days. We feel blue for a few days. We give up on him. Our coffee was lukewarm when we got it today, and now we can't worship. The pastor's not wearing a vest today, so I guess. You understand what I'm, I'm being silly. We're much more petty than that. You know what, all that that means is that we are much more driven by circumstances than we are by spiritual things. Well, I can worship God because why? My family had an awesome week and I got a raise at work and that's great. It's great. Praise God for that. And what about when the joy of that wears off? Because here's what I hear some of you say, Pastor, rejoice with me. I got this job. Praise God. And then you come to me six months later, Pastor, I need God to deliver me from the job that God gave me. What changed? Circumstances. If you chase circumstances for joy, you're going to be chasing circumstances the rest of your life. What this shows me, it strongly hints that Paul and Silas, even though they were injured, they were whole. It strongly indicates to me that even though they were uncomfortable, they were very comfortable. Even though they had nothing to their name financially, it indicates they thought they were wealthy. Even though it looked hopeless, it indicates to me that they thought that they were filled with hope. Where did that come from? Not their circumstances. It came through their spirit. And what was in there? Jesus, the Holy Spirit was there. This is why someone like Carrie can stand up here as she did a few weeks ago and say, even when my husband and I lost our baby, we still had joy in Jesus. That doesn't mean that everything was easy. It just meant there was still joy. And that joy wasn't extracted from their circumstances. It came from somewhere else. Aren't you looking for that? Aren't you chasing? Don't you want to feel joy constantly? Stop searching for it in money. Stop searching for it in romance. Stop searching for it. Well, if my husband would just get himself together, then I would have joy. Don't wait for that. Why do you want to give them permission to tell you if you can have joy or not? It's internal. In Jesus. And guess what? I don't have to pray it into you. If you're in him and he's in you, you have it. Let's get it out. You can reach down into your spirit and pull that joy up into your thoughts, into your emotions and your attitudes. You can crucify your flesh daily. You can choose what things you think on, you speak on. You can invite the Holy Spirit to have the driver's seat and you can live the kind of joy that they lived. Let's keep pushing. Let's go back to suddenly, verse 26, there is a massive earthquake and the prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open and the chains of every prisoner fell off. Luke takes one, what, what, two sentences here and breaks down a whole bunch of stuff that I don't understand scientifically how this all happened, okay? It's obviously a localized earthquake because we have no indication that anybody else in the city talks about it the next day. It happened suddenly. There was no warning that it was coming. I guess they hadn't invented the seismograph yet, so that makes sense. Um, 
There was no other evidence to tip off that it happened. It was massive. The prison was shaken to its foundations, but yet some specific structures survived and other ones failed. The doors flew open. How does a padlock shake off in an earthquake? I, <laughs> I don't know. Apparently the chains just fell off because they were shaken hard enough. It was really just the shaking. I don't know. All I know is that God authored this thing and he can do really specific localized surgical earthquakes that can do extra things normal earthquakes don't do. The doors fly open. The chains of every prisoner fell off. Now, let's just for a moment understand. Prisoners are not generally in prison in these days because they're honorable men and women. If a prisoner is in jail and their chains fall off and the doors go open, what are they going to do? Yeah, they're going to leave. So now some, I got more questions. So go to verse 27. I got more questions. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He puts two and two together and he does something we shouldn't do. He assumed. Oh. I'll save that one. I'm just trying to put together in real time here. I, and you were in the first. This guy became suicidal by a wrong assumption. And isn't that the root of where we get a lot of those mental health issues? There's something we believe about ourselves that's not true. <laughs> and the enemy just plays that forward and you're convinced I have no, anyway, I don't know. Maybe I need to think about that more before I preach it. He assumed the prisoners had escaped. So he drew his sword to kill himself. Now, why does he draw the sword? He's just gonna take care of himself because he knows that tomorrow morning he's gonna be executed because he assumes the prisoners escaped. So he's immediately suicidal. There's so much, I, this is one of these verses I'm like, Luke doesn't tell me as much as I want to know. Paul shouted to him, stop, don't kill yourself, we are all here. I've got questions. First, what is it about Paul that is willing to forsake his own safety because he notices the jailer's about to commit suicide? Why is he willing to prioritize that jailer's life over his freedom. Second, how does he know all the prisoners are there and why didn't they leave and who kept them there? I mean, was Silas running around being like, look, you're not leaving anywhere because if you leave, like, I don't know what's going on. Why didn't they leave? Verse 29. The jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon, and now he does something we have not seen him do. He falls down trembling before Paul and Silas. What would it take for a hardened man who beats people with rods to be so overcome with fear and terror that he falls down trembling before a prisoner? He brought them out and asked my favorite question in the New Testament. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? How does he even know to answer that question? What we don't have is, well, Paul and Silas had just finished their sermon. It's almost like this guy has been listening to their noise all night, listening to these songs, hearing the prayers. You know, who the, you know what even the, the Romans believed? You, who did the Romans believe were responsible for earthquakes? The gods. So he's thinking there's a spiritual connection here. 
Now he's saying, these people have treated me better than I did. He's terrified. He assumes he sh- he's not saved, or else he would not ask, what do I have to do to become saved? This sounds to me like guilt, fear, trembling. And now this is a softball for Paul. What do I have to do to be saved? Every pastor is like, we don't, we don't usually get asked that question. We usually have to convince you to get there. This person says, what do I need to be, do to be saved? And we've already heard that speech from Paul before. He says basically two things. Re- believe and repent. Repent and believe. Bring your simple pen- repentance, your simple faith in Jesus, and you will be saved. And so that's what we expect to hear in verse 31. Paul answers the question. They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. We need to unpack this real quick. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. And you're like, wait a minute. We have a second definition of salvation here. And this is going to be a problem. Because the last thing we need to be running around the world with is more than one definition of what it takes to be saved. That's just going to throw the whole world into confusion. Christians, we need to go on the same page about what it takes to be saved. And you're saying, in this chapter and verse, he says, repent and believe. And here he just says, believe. What about repentance? I think if you go back a verse, Paul could say, "Uh, well, that box has been checked because he is seeing the physical manifestation of repentance in the jailer already. The jailer knows he's in danger. He's terrified of dying. He knows he's not saved and he wants to be saved. That's everything you need to hear from a repentant heart. I don't think Paul's skipping over that part of the sermon. I think he's saying, all right, he's got that part. But it's not just to repent and be afraid. He says, believe. And that means a whole lot more than what we reduce it to. What he's not saying is just believe that Jesus existed and walked around the earth for a few years. This word believe is the Greek word pisteus, which means to attach to, to cling to, to trust in, to rely on. Here's what he's saying. If you attach yourself to Jesus, trust in Jesus, cling to Jesus, rely on Jesus, together with your repentant heart, you bring that to the Lord. And if the Lord sees that present and active in your heart, then everything in Jesus's resume will be credited to yours. That's salvation. That's salvation. And then he throws this phrase in, and along with everyone in your household, and we're like, hold up. Does this mean that the moment the jailer in the jailhouse prays this prayer to the Lord, that while his family sleeps, they're automatically saved? No, it's a prophetic word from Paul. He's saying, because you get saved, it's going to open up an opportunity for us to share the gospel with your family, and they're going to be saved too. Well, prove that to me. Well, read the next two verses. They then went and shared the word with him and also with those who lived in his house. In other words, he prophesies in verse 31 what happens in verses 32 and 33. You can't get saved by proxy, or I could pray today for everybody to be saved. He's saying your salvation opens up an opportunity for your whole house to come to the Lord. Verse 33, even at that hour of the night, the jailer Look at this radical change in his character that happened immediately upon salvation. Because some things change instantly when you get saved and other things change gradually. Here's some of the stuff that changed instantly. The jailer cared for them and washed their wounds that he probably helped to inflict. Then he and everyone in his house were immediately baptized. Now think about this. Here's a guy 
who a couple sentences earlier was ready to kill himself at the thought that a prisoner would have escaped the prison. Now what does he do? He's saved. He takes the prisoners out of the prison himself and takes them home and makes them grilled cheese sandwiches. My interpretation. He brought them into his house and set a meal before them. You understand he's doing the same thing. He's literally taking the prisoners out of jail and taking them to his house and feeding them. Not terrified of the consequences. What does that, Jesus? Because he understood now he had life that even if when this one ends, that one continues forever. And he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. So what do you see here? You see these You see a radical change. He went from suicidal to joyous immediately. He went from cold-hearted to hospitable immediately. He went from being indifferent and neutral to people, from being a violent man to being compassionate, even taking care of them physically. Praise God for what he does in the lives of people. The origin of true joy is internal. I have four minutes left, so I can't unpack the rest of this. Let's just finish the chapter together. The next morning, don't you want to know what happened the next day? The city officials sent the police to tell the jailer, let those men go. So the jailer told Paul, the city officials have said, you and Silas are free to leave, go in peace. Here's my question for you. Who do you think this earthquake was for? The jailer. Now, why would you say that? Here's why. Because God knew the next morning Paul and Silas were going to be released anyway. He didn't have to send an earthquake for them. You see this? In no way, shape, or form does it indicate that the city officials were even aware that there was an earthquake and connected the cause of the earthquake to those two guys like they did in the Old Testament with Jonah. They figured, this guy is the reason we're having all kinds of problems. If we get rid of him, the boat will sail smoother. That's not what's going on here. The city officials were like, okay, this was a misdemeanor. They've been punished. Let's let him go. God knew that he didn't have to send an earthquake to let them out of jail. That was for the jailer and his household. Do you see how much God loves people? Do you see how he chases you and me? Do you see the extent that he will go to to give you an opportunity to hear the gospel? It's because he loves you. He loves you. He's jealous for you. He wants you to have every reasonable opportunity to hear a clear presentation of the truth of the gospel and have the right to say yes or no to Jesus. So verse 37 Paul replies, what? They have publicly beaten us without a trial and put us in prison. And now he lets something slip. He could have said earlier, and we are Roman citizens. You realize if he says that when they're arrested, none of this happens. Do you see the extent Paul was willing to go to? Maybe you don't. So now they want us to leave secretly? Certainly not. Let them come themselves to release us. You know what he's doing here? He's being strategic. Because if he lets the enemies write the narrative, here's what it looks like. Two Jewish men came to town. Turns out that they were Christians. They broke the law. They were beaten. And then they were released. And he's like, that makes it look like we're guilty. And that's going to leave a bad reputation for the church. Mm -mm 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 -mm. I need a concrete expression of our innocence from the police so that it leaves a positive witness to the entire community and not hinder the growth of the church. So now he says, because it could advance the gospel, I'll play my Roman citizenship card. So the news gets back to the officials that they actually beat Roman citizens without a trial, and they're terrified, verse 38. 
The police reported this. The city officials were alarmed to learn that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. They were like, uh-oh, we have messed up here. So they came to the jail and apologized to them. What does that even sound like? Uh, you know what? I realize we beat you within an inch of your life. You're sorry about that. Um, full apology. Uh, what do you even say? <laughs> they brought them out and begged them to leave the city. Verse 40. Paul and Silas left the prison. They returned home to the home of Lydia. And I bet it was an awesome church service that day. There they met with the believers and encouraged them. After you've gotten a beating and a delivery, I mean, I hope you're still able to encourage folk. (laughs) Then they left town. And you see this guy, Paul, who was willing to be beaten in order that it gave him an opportunity to lead somebody to Jesus. Isn't that just like the Jesus that he followed? A man willing to be beaten and treated unjustly and to suffer in order that you and I can have relationship with God one way through him. Will you bow your heads with me as I pray? Worship team, will you return? Would you like to come into God's kingdom today? He would love to have you inside his kingdom. I know we can pick apart a sermon as well you should. You should see if it lines up with the Bible and you should make sure that anything that you heard today was true and accurate. And if it isn't, then you cast that aside and you don't give that root. But I know that even while I'm speaking, the Holy Spirit's been working on hearts today. And he's drawing you, he's making you aware of your need to be saved and of his willingness to save you. And so I just want to invite you, would you like to come into God's kingdom today? Are you ready to surrender control of your life to Jesus? Do you recognize that you are sinful, that we aren't perfect, and that despite your best efforts, you can't make yourself sinless? Only God can do that. And that he is ready, willing, and able to forgive you, to heal you, to restore you, to make you a new woman, a new man, to fill you with his spirit, to give you life eternal, and to give you access to all the full benefits package of the kingdom of God. If you're ready for that, can't happen by proxy. You have to be active in it. You bring your belief and your willingness to repent, your simple faith, simple repentance. You bring that to the Lord, and he sees your heart. And if he sees that active in your heart, you will be gloriously saved. I want to lead you in a simple prayer that's The nucleus of it is given to us by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. Let me lead you in a prayer if you'd like to come into God's kingdom today. This is the way we come in. A prayer that says, Dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. I'm ready to change. I need to be saved. Forgive me of my sins. I'm sorry for disobeying you. I believe in you, Jesus, your God's son. You died on the cross in my place. You're my substitute. I believe God received your payment on my behalf. And I believe you rose from the dead and you're alive today. So I attach myself to you. I cling to you. I make myself dependent upon you. I rely on you. 
and I trust you because you're the Lord. It means you're the leader and I'm not. But I trust you to lead me. Help me follow you every day you give me breath. Holy Spirit, come live in me. Change me instantly and gradually. Make me into the image of Jesus. Amen. Just leave your eyes closed for one moment. If you prayed that prayer and you meant it, you don't have to do another thing. God heard it. You are saved. All of heaven is rejoicing. I just ask if you prayed that prayer with me. I just ask you if it's the, this is just a personal ask. If you prayed that prayer with me, I don't want you to be embarrassed or ashamed. I'm going to count to three. And if you prayed that prayer, I've asked everybody to keep their eyes closed. But if you prayed that prayer, when I get to three, would you just lift up your hand, make eye contact with me real quick, and you can put your hand right back down. I just want to acknowledge that with you because that's, that's the best decision you'll ever make. And I just want to affirm that in your life today. One, two, three. Anybody pray that prayer with me this morning? Check around real quick. Awesome. Awesome. All right, every eye open, every head up. If you're willing and able, will you stand with me this morning? I hope at some point today the Holy Spirit made something spark in your heart as you listened and as we read through Acts chapter 16 together. We actually covered a lot of ground today. We covered like 40 verses. Great job. Good job. You hung with me. Um, a lot of good stuff in there that deserves a lot of conversation, but the pace moves so fast, it's like you can only hit on some of it. I hope there is there, maybe there's some things you'll dig into on your own this week. But I know this. Every moment from now that we don't water whatever that spark was into our heart, it's going to diminish to the point where 15 minutes from now you could run into someone and say, oh, what was, how was church today? You could say, oh, it was good. Well, what did the pastor talk about? I have no idea, but it was good. You know, like we want, we want those, whatever it was that the Holy Spirit sparked in your heart for you today, I want it to take root. I don't want it to blow off 15 minutes from now. That's what these last five, six minutes are. For us, it's just an opportunity as we sing together, as we pray, as we give, for us to just pause these last few moments and say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me personally today? And what do you want me to do with what I heard? That's honestly the best two questions you can ask of the Holy Spirit anytime you read your Bible, anytime you pray, anytime you hear teaching. Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me personally today? And what do you want me to do with what I heard? If you can learn to ask and answer those questions you can't help but grow spiritually. So I encourage you to do that today. Our prayer team is coming. Our worship team is here. If you'd like prayer as we worship here at the end, uh, please come forward and find, you come to Suba. I'll be over here. If you'd like prayer, we'd be happy to pray with you this morning. Um, also, we'll be receiving our tithes and offer, the Lord's tithes, your offerings today. So our team is coming to serve you in that capacity because that's part of the way that we worship here. We put God first in our finances. We give to him first, that first portion of what he gives to us. We give it back into our local church so that we can continue the ministry that God has here for us and so that we can help ministries around the country and around the world continue to grow. So I'm going to pray. Keith's going to lead us. And then uh, once we've, we've worshiped together and given this morning, Pastor James is going to come and close our service. Jesus, we love you. You are better to us than we deserve. Thank you that you break every chain. Thank you that you are available to us always. Thank you that every time we have a spiritual conversation, you're working on the heart of the listener. Thank you that we have access to true joy through your spirit that we can't find in circumstances. And thank you for always preserving the witness of your church. Father, we are just so filled with your goodness today. 
It's our joy to return to you a portion of what you've entrusted to us through these offerings. Father, we, uh, we thank you again for being a generous God. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.